Hey everyone, this week's podcast is an interview I recorded with Hunter Levine, a good friend of mine and also the college pastor at my church, and we were talking about the resurrection, why it matters, how does it affect our personal devotion, our personal faith, but more than that, what are common objections and how can we overcome them with the best evidences for the resurrection. So I hope it's helpful to you, and here it goes. Hey Brian, thanks for sitting down with us and making some time to come on the For the Campus podcast. Glad to, looking forward to it. Well, it's Easter week, and what we wanted to have you on to talk about was the resurrection. What's the significance for Christian? What are common objections? How do college students think about it? And how does it impact their life, but also how do they use it as a conversational missional tool? And so I would love for you just to start by giving us the case of why the resurrection matters. Right off the bat, we have to realize without the resurrection, there's no Christianity. Um, the the decisive turning point in the scriptures, if we start in in Genesis and we go through to the end, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, And without that, Jesus is not the man and God-man he claimed to be. Um, He's he's a liar, he's a lunatic, but he's not Lord, uh, because he taught that he was God, he taught that he would die and rise from the dead. So just basically, if the resurrection didn't happen, there's no Christianity. Um, And then if we want to explain history looking back, you need something like a resurrection, because only that is going to explain the birth of this new religion and the church, a, a people that are created around this event. Um, and this might seem a little foreign to us today, but the Jews had no concept of the isolated resurrection of an individual person. So it's not like they would have, they would have made this up and said that it fit the narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't have a concept of a Messiah who would come and die and rise. Jesus repeatedly explains this to his disciples, and, you know, there's even this uh, interesting example in the Gospel of Mark where Peter rebukes Jesus when he tells him he's going to die and rise, because surely the Messiah can't do that, because Mm. they didn't understand the type of Messiah he was. And then you see these Jewish followers convert to a new religion and leave behind family ties and community ties and exchange circumcision and law-keeping for baptism and salvation by grace through faith. And so if we want to even just understand human history, much less Christian history or church history, you can't do that without the resurrection happening. But then perhaps most pertinently for us today, if Jesus hasn't been raised, our faith is useless and we're still in our sins. And and there's not hope. Uh, There's not a release from this debt that we have to God. And that's just basically exactly what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is useless. You're still in your sins. So why does the resurrection matter? Um, It matters if we're going to have our sins forgiven. It matters if we're going to understand and and actually have confidence in our participation in the Christian faith. And it's funny that you bring up that 1 Corinthians 15 passage, because as a church, we've been in 1 Corinthians. But when I've taught that in the past, I say that the city of Corinth is a really great parallel city for college students, because there's a lot of different ideologies coming together in Corinth and uh, people from all different backgrounds and worldviews coming together. I often say that it's a lot like a college campus or a lot like Gainesville, you know, except that <laughs> the people of Corinth could read, you know. And um, sure. uh, But all joking aside, you know, it, it was a challenging place to be a Christian. And one of the things that Paul is constantly saying to Christians is that, you know, the power of the cross, the power of the resurrection is foolishness to the world, uh, yes. but yet it's the power for us. Could you elaborate a little bit? And I know that you recently uh, even talked about this in a sermon at City Church, but how do Christians think about the the wisdom of God and the foolishness that the world sees that as? 
Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So Paul is talking about the resurrection of Christ, this kind of simple summary of the gospel in, in chapter 15 of his letter to the Corinthians. But all the way back in chapter 1, in verse 18, he says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. So if you're not a Christian, yeah, the cross is foolish. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. And there's no middle group there. And why is the cross foolishness? And why does he go on later in chapter 2 to call it a stumbling block? Well, consider, they're preaching this message of a dying and rising Messiah to Jews. And the Jews believed, and the Old, the Old Testament teaches, that if you were hung on a tree, you were under God's curse. So certainly the Messiah would not have been under God's curse. Now, we understand he took that curse on our behalf for us and paid for our sin. But nonetheless, it's, it's a stumbling block to the Jews, and it's foolishness to the Gentiles. I mean, consider on a college campus today if you go and you say, okay, so there was this man that uh, he was also God. Uh, God and man together, and he lived a perfect life, and he died on a cross and rose from the dead. If they actually take you seriously and believe you believe what you're saying, they're going to think it's foolishness, because they're going to evaluate it according to the standards of today, according to their presuppositions, according to their worldview, which says things like resurrections don't happen. Beings like a, a God don't exist, and incarnation is a ridiculous idea. And so we really have two different ways of evaluating reality. We understand the entire world in two very different ways. One of us says supernatural things and events exist, and the other says that that's just a ridiculous idea on the face of it. And there's not a middle ground there. And so to your, to your question on how should we think about this, well, just to get started, we need to realize that this is still a ridiculous idea to non-Christians today. The very mm -hmm. central claim of Christianity is the most utterly foolish thing someone else could imagine. So we just need to swallow that pill and know mm -hmm. when we go into a conversation with someone, it's not if they'll think we're foolish for believing what we believe, it's that they will think we're foolish. Mm -hmm. And we don't have to worry about that. And that should be freeing to us because they're just going to see us who we, as who we are. We shouldn't mm -hmm. be embarrassed about the central things that the, the scriptures teach. So talk to me about a college student who says, look, I'm a Christian. I believe in the words of Christ and what his message was. I just don't believe he resurrected. Yeah, well, those two things don't go together. Um, the, the best attested event in all of Christian history and all the scriptures is actually the resurrection, and we'll get into that in a little bit, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, but what you can't say is, I believe what Jesus taught and deny the resurrection. For, mm -hmm. for a few reasons. The first is, Jesus teaches his disciples in Luke 24, after the resurrection and before he ascends to heaven, that the way that the Old Testament scriptures were written was about him, that he would die and rise. He says that the whole Old Testament is about that and points to it. That's Jesus. Jesus teaches his disciples multiple times before the cross that he would die and rise from the dead. So you can't have this Jesus who's a good teacher that I follow and then deny the most important things he taught. It just doesn't work. Mm. So let's talk about some common objections, because I think uh, we did a survey with our student leaders and some other students in the college ministry recently, and it was on evangelism. And a big common theme about why people are, sometimes struggle with evangelism was that, that they're worried that they won't know the right answers, they won't say the right things, they won't, uh, they'll get caught up in some sort of objection that they can't answer. So I'd love to talk about some common objections to the resurrection of Christ. Um, the first one I think that uh, I'd love just to go ahead and get out of the way is just the, the overall idea that Jesus is a made-up figure. Could you talk a little bit about how do we handle somebody who says Jesus isn't even real, let alone resurrected? 
Yeah, there, there's a high likelihood that you encounter that objection in a YouTube comment section, in mm. my experience. Um, th that's just a ridiculous idea. And I, and I don't say that to call names. That's not my intent here. But just simply to say, there are a lot of scholars and historians that study the claims of religion and Christianity. And I would say at least half or more are actually not Christians. And mm -hmm. the non-Christian scholars today that know anything about this and study anything close to this topic would all agree that Jesus was a figure of history, mm -hmm. that he lived at the time Christians believe him to have lived, that Christians even believed at that time the things we believe today. Now, they would say that what they believed was wrong. They would say he didn't rise from the dead. But this idea that he didn't even exist is just kind of a... a a groundless, baseless idea that just gets tossed around by people who don't honestly know what they're talking about. Hmm. Now, I did want to address one thing you said, though, which is how, how should we think about uh, common objections and, and when people are concerned that they might not know how to answer everything? You're not going to know how to answer everything. Mm -hmm. There are already things in this podcast I wish I had explained differently. And I'm thinking back on, and oh, I wish I would have said this. And I don't think there's a conversation I have with someone who's a Christian or a non-Christian that I don't walk away from thinking, man, I should have explained it this way, or, or this verse really applies here. And so just realize, like, you're a human, mm -hmm. and you, you need the Spirit, you need to study to show yourself to be approved when you have these conversations, but you're never going to do it perfectly. But it's not you and your eloquence that mm -hmm. saves the other person. If we want to con continue on in, in 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 3, Paul goes on to say, I, I didn't preach with persuasive words of wisdom so that the cross wouldn't be robbed of its power. And so mm -hmm. we have to realize it's our job to be faithful in these conversations and do the best with what we have and continually get more equipped, but it's the Spirit of God that does the work when we have the conversation. Yeah, and I know that that's a big temptation for college students is to get really and truthfully, it's a worldly idea that I have to win you over to Christ when right. that's not what the scriptures teach. You know, the scriptures teach that God is working in people's lives through the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel. And our job is to preach that gospel to people. And um, so I think that that's a, that's a great reminder as we have this conversation too, that the cross and the resurrection is actually the, the motivator for us to go out, even though we aren't very articulate. Yes. And none of us are, are as articulate as we think. And even seasoned, you know, apologetics and people who do apologetics and everything, uh, they struggle and, you know, make mistakes too. Yeah. But yet you, the, the, the call to a Christian is obedience, you know. Well, and um, consider, right, what, what are we talking about articulating better? A message that's foolishness to them. So if we articulate it even better, are they going to see it as more foolish? That's a great well, point. maybe if we are yeah. accurately representing what it is. So and that's, that just goes back to what I was saying. If, if we explain the gospel and the person isn't off-put or offended or they don't think it's foolish, I actually wonder if we did it right. Mm -hmm. Because that, and, that message is still craziness to the world today. And you, talk, you, made, you made something I want to draw out earlier, a good point, is that we are people who believe in supernatural. We can't, we can't try to pretend like we don't believe that there's a God who created the universe out right. of nothing you know, and just spoke it into existence. And I don't remember exactly who said it, but essentially if we take that, you know, we take that initial idea of creation that we see in the beginning of Scripture, well, if this God is speaking everything into existence, then every other thing in the Bible is possible. I remember I had a—I was a student at Florida State, and I had a student who his big hang-up, his big thing he wanted to talk to me about was how the construction of a serpent's jaw is not possible for them to speak. <laughs> and I remember asking them, I said, I have no clue. I'm not a biologist, but is, is that really yeah, your hang-up? You know, <laughs> is that really the issue? Because 
earlier in the book, there's a God who creates everything out of nothing, and you're right. you're caught up about the you know phonetics of a snake, you know reptile. Yeah. Um, but I I think That's we do have point. to embrace that as Christians that we believe in a supernatural God, uh, who can do these things and um, yeah, has if- done them has done crazy things all throughout the, the scriptures. Uh, and there's a temptation, and I'd love for you to talk about it, but a temptation for Christians uh, to try to reason with people um, and set their faith to the side or set the supernatural to the side. Could you talk about the approach of, no, we need to reason from the scriptures and not try to push the scriptures or try to push supernatural apart away from it? Yeah, certainly. Um, the very first verse of the Bible tells us the type of world we live in. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So in the beginning, before all of the creation was made, there was just God. So before anything physical, there was God, which means God is non-physical. He's supernatural. That tells us the type of world we live in. It also tells us that this God has power over everything that was made. And so, yeah, to your point, if the very first verse in the Bible is true, everything that follows is plausible. Mm -hmm. And the, the biggest miracle that ever occurred in the scriptures is that very first verse. Now, you might say the most important one is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but the biggest one is the very first verse in the Bible. So yes, it tells us the type of world we live in. And so as Christians, we shouldn't act like we don't live in that world. Mm-hmm. Like we, we, we often act like, well, I need to be neutral in a conversation so people don't think I have a bias. Well, the person you're talking with has a bias. They're not neutral. And if mm-hmm. what the Bible actually says about the world is true— then I'm not acting neutrally when I'm setting aside what the scriptures say. I'm acting falsely Mm. Um, because the the scriptures tell us about the way the world is. It's God's uh, revelation of himself and his creation. And so when I set aside what the scriptures have to say, uh, I'm not acting in a more true way. I'm I'm actually, perhaps I'm ashamed of what the scriptures say. Perhaps I think it's going to be more compelling. But if we remember where we started today, that the message of the cross and what God has to say is foolish— then I'm not actually leading with truth, and I shouldn't be surprised that when I do lead with truth, Mm -hmm. that people are off-put by it. So yeah, I I think we lead with what the Scriptures have to say. This is the model of the apostles. Um, This is the model of of Christians throughout the centuries, and they're not surprised when people who don't have the Spirit act like people who don't have the Spirit. And just one last thing to tag on to the end there. Often Acts 17 comes up in these conversations where, you know, Paul goes before the philosophers of the day on Mars Hill and the Areopagus in Athens, and what's often said is, well, he reasoned with them, but he didn't reason from the scriptures. And it's like, Mm -hmm. well, you get to the very end of that dialogue, and he tells them that God displayed his power by raising his son from the dead, and they all mock him and think he's ridiculous. So he didn't set his biblical, you know, convictions on the side. He knew when he said that they would be off-put. And we actually see, though, there were a few who believed and wanted to hear more. And mm-hmm. so, yes, the, the great majority still thought it was foolish, but the Spirit chose through that, because he didn't set his convictions on the sideline, to still save those who would come to believe. Talk to me about the swoon theory and the theory that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. Yeah, Um, So there are about three common popular theories for how to explain the, we'll just call it the Jesus event, without affirming what Christians believe of the death Mm -hmm. and resurrection. And one of them is this swoon theory. Uh, Muslims often will affirm this. Uh, The Quran says that Jesus didn't die on the cross, but it was made to look like he did. Um, So either that means like he was on the cross and he didn't really die, or it was just a lookalike. Other Mm -hmm. people will say maybe Jesus didn't actually die. But here's what we have to ask ourselves. Is that that a plausible explanation for what we see? 
So what would that mean? That would mean that uh, he was on the cross. He just kind of passed out from, from shock and everything like that, which is plausible. They took him down. They buried him. And then, uh, well, how do we explain that people saw him walking around? How do we explain that people believed he had risen from the dead? Even uh, extra biblical sources say that the disciples at the time believed that he had risen from the dead. Mm -hmm. And what would explain his disciples seeing him after he is now out of the tomb and believing that he's God? So if he actually were on the cross and he'd been stabbed with a spear, he'd undergone crucifixion to the point where people thought he was dead, he's in no position to convince anyone that he's the Lord of life, the Lord of glory, conqueror of death, and that they should place their trust for salvation in him and be willing to die for that claim. He would be desperately in need of medical attention. Um, He's not going to be walking around, like if you had uh, such a horrible experience on the cross that you uh, basically convinced people you were dead, intentionally or otherwise, they're not going to believe that you have risen from the dead and follow you. Um, he travels long distances after this, uh, the, after the resurrection or the supposed resurrection, if you're on this view. But here's the other thing. What explains the empty tomb? How did Jesus roll the stone away if he's basically dead? Well, he didn't. Someone had to do it. Well, who were these people? Were, were they his disciples? So if his disciples had to roll the stone away and get him out of the tomb, then that means what they made up in the scriptures is also false. But they make up women discovering the tomb empty. Well, if you're going to make up a story about a tomb being empty, you wouldn't make up women discovering it because at the time they had low social standing. But it also means that the whole understanding is a fabrication. It's a conspiracy. They made it up. But then they go on to die for it. Mm-hmm. You don't make up a lie to get yourself killed. No one dies for something they believe to be false, or much less that they made up when they, when they stood to gain nothing. Mm-hmm. So it sounds good, like many of the, the theories to, alternative, to uh, alternatively explain the resurrection, it sounds good to just toss out, well, maybe he swooned on the cross. But as soon as you start you know, poking in on it and examining the details, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't mm-hmm. hold up to scrutiny. So there's a lot more we could say, um, but just as a baseline, it, it doesn't work. It only mm-hmm. works if you don't examine the details. And I know a lot of the, um, a lot of people also kind of talk about maybe the idea that Jesus did die and they stole the body and they used that to take the message and I guess yeah. perpetuate it and try to get power or something. I mean, what does that a, work out for him? Yeah, <laughs> not well. <laughs> not well. And and I'd love for you to talk about, I think, that the defense for the resurrection across all those common objections are um, is pretty similar with the fact that they had women discover it, even though that, if you were gonna, like you said, if you were going to make up somebody to discover it, you would try to find the most credible in society. If you're, Could you also yeah. talk, too, about, um, like, how, how do people kind of, how do people maybe set up a good defense for the cross? What are the best kind of bullet points for why we should believe that the cross and the resurrection happen. Yeah, let, let's start out with some of the common objections today, like you just mentioned, and then and then move to that. So was it a conspiracy? Did the disciples just decide to make up this story that Jesus actually came back to life? Well, in order for that to be the case, the tomb needed to be empty. In order for the resurrection to be believed in Jerusalem, the very place where he died, the tomb needed to be empty because if, if people are saying, well, there's, there's this guy, Jesus, and I, I just saw him, and he was executed as a political dissident of Rome, well, they're going to go point to the fact that he's still in the tomb, his body's in the grave, and they can't do that. Now, how do we know they couldn't do that? Because the oldest theory, the oldest uh, alternate explanation of the resurrection is actually recorded in the scriptures. 
And so we see in Matthew 28, 13, that the religious leaders say to the, um, the, the soldiers that were guarding the tomb, you're to say, his disciples came at night and stole his body while we were asleep. And if this matter is heard before the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And Matthew tells us that this story was told among the Jews to this day, 20, 40 years later. So the Jews actually were the first ones to make up this conspiracy theory. But does it make sense? Mm. Well, it doesn't make sense that the disciples are going to overpower a Roman guard. Um, it doesn't make sense that they're going to create this fabricated story because conspiracies are notoriously uh, unstable. They unravel. But all throughout the scriptures, including in 1 Corinthians and the passage we were talking about earlier, we see that multiple different people from multiple different backgrounds see Jesus at different times. Even 500 people, Paul mentions. Um, and then some people are actually converted through experiences with the risen Christ. We see that James, the brother of Jesus, who thought his brother was crazy before the resurrection, ultimately comes to believe in him because Jesus appears to him, and he goes on to lead the Jerusalem church and is martyred for his faith. His faith in his brother, who he used to think was crazy but now worshipped as God. The only thing that explains that is a resurrection. So it couldn't be a conspiracy that doesn't make sense, that imputes motive to them that we have no evidence for. Um, and it still affirms that the tomb was empty. And that's a, that's a critical point. All of these false theories unravel if the tomb, tomb was empty, and no one really debates that it, it was. They didn't at the time, and for the most part, people don't today either. Mm. So what are, the, what are the best evidences for the resurrection? Uh, the empty tomb, the fact that all of the other proposed uh, explanations really fall on their face when you examine them. It's only when you stay away from the details that they, they perhaps sound compelling. Like, we haven't even talked about... Some people want to say, well, it was just group hallucinations. Well, where's the evidence for that? <laughs> um, it doesn't exist. And, and how did people at multiple different places and different times with different religious backgrounds all have the same hallucination? And it doesn't take into account that a, a vision of a deceased person then and today is a confirmation that they're dead, not a somehow uh, sign that they're alive. But when you set all that aside, the scriptures teach it. It's the best explanation. And if you, if you want to consider, let's say you have a an oddly shaped object in your house um, and you put a cloth over it and you can see the contours of it and you're left just looking at that cloth over this object to figure out what it is. There are some things that are clearly excluded, right? Just based on, on what you can see. Now you can't see all the details. And if we just look back at history, we look at all the evidence. We look at what people affirmed at the day who were, who were Romans or who were Jews or who became Christians. And we say, what best explains the shape of all that evidence, the shape of history, it's only the resurrection. Hmm. And to me, one of the things that's most impactful is that the people who were closest to Jesus, his disciples who would go on, many of them, to be martyred for their faith and were in the position to know if he had actually risen from the dead, they go to the, their death affirming that he had risen from the grave. And that's the only thing that in inspires that kind of loyalty. Okay. And I have a couple other things I want to talk about when it comes to how we respond to it, but before we do that, what resources would you encourage college students, books, articles, websites, etc., cetera, uh, who want to study more about Christ's resurrection and the significance of it? Yeah, if you're looking for a short, uh, maybe 80-page book on the resurrection, uh, William Lane Craig's Did Jesus Rise from the Dead is really helpful. He's going to examine the resurrection and all these competing theories from a lens of a historian and five different critical points of how historians evaluate claims of history. I think that's mm -hmm. helpful. If you want something shorter, 
Um, my book, Unapologetic, A Guide for Defending Your, Defending Your Christian Convictions, has two chapters on the resurrection. And if you, shameless plug here, uh, if you go to my website and sign up to get alerted for new podcasts at the top, I'll actually send you those two chapters on the resurrection for free mm-hmm. in your email. Um, there, there are bigger books and things like that, but I really think that the Craig book, if you're just interested in the resurrection, is a great place to start. And then read the gospel accounts. Read, I mean, it's interesting, right, that people want to claim that the, they've discovered the conspiracy theory, and, and Matthew's already telling us that that existed 2,000 years ago. Um, and, and how do we think about it? So become more familiar with the primary texts mm. that talk about the resurrection in the scriptures. It's sad that oftentimes that's the last place we go. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- that's how I would start out answering that question. No, that's very helpful. And I'll include links to those two two books on the uh, show notes. All right, so help us understand how does it impact us today? Like what, so yes, okay, as Christians, we, we need to affirm this. You've been really clear about why it matters to the gospel message, but like how does that actually, the resurrection, impact us today as believers? Yeah, Uh so a little bit to echo where I started, we're only believers if the resurrection happened. Mm-hmm. And, and more than that, we're only believers if we believe the resurrection happened. Um, so just broadly, I would say confidence. The, mm-hmm. Perhaps the biggest takeaway in terms of how we think about it should be confidence. And it's interesting to me, through, through my adult life, I've talked with many Christians who, who are, when they're honest, will admit to having doubts about the resurrection. Mm-hmm. And you might think, the central thing in Christianity, how could that happen? Well, I, the way I ex- understand it, these, these are in many other ways faithful people, is we are kind of like frogs sitting in a pot of slowly heated water in our culture today. A culture that explicitly and implicitly uh, denies that the supernatural exists. And so for the vast majority of our lives, through our K-12 education, through our college education, especially college education, Everything that's explicitly and implicitly taught to us assumes the supernatural is false and does not exist. And so we can subtly start to believe that and then say, really, angels and demons? Are we sure? A resurrection? Like, I mean, ugh. and And so for me, looking through and understanding this case and evidence for the resurrection is deeply encouraging, mm-hmm. even for me. And I teach on this, but the most encouraging topic for me to teach on is the resurrection, just to my personal faith. Because when you examine all of the evidence, when you examine all of the alternate theories and conspiracy this and swoon that, they don't hold up. And I'm just reaffirmed over and over again in my confidence. But more specifically, what do the scriptures have to say about the significance of the resurrection? Well, I think of Paul in Romans 4, 25, when he talks about uh, the fact that Jesus was given over because of our sins, and he was mm-hmm. raised for our justification. So if, if I want to be cleansed of my sins, if I want to be declared not just innocent, but righteous in God's eyes, I need the resurrection. It's because of the resurrection that, Jesus, uh, that the Father looks at me and says, I-, I see the perfect righteousness of my Son. Mm-hmm. I think of also our hope for the future. Not just that today I have been declared righteous with my justification, uh, but I think of our future resurrection, that when I die one day, I'm going to Mm. be raised to newness of life uh, and live forever in bliss with my Savior, Jesus Christ, because of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Mm -hmm. If Christ is being preached as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection? He goes on to say that Jesus is the first fruits. He's the proof that you and I as Christians will be resurrected. Mm. And I, I think perhaps right now in, in you know, Holy Week, but especially as we're all dealing with this COVID-19 
crisis and we're seeing that uh, we are very mortal people, that little teeny things we can't see can change every facet of our life and even take our, our life away in this life, um, mm-hmm. that realizing that there is a certain expectation Christians have for a glorified resurrection existence, and the reason we can trust and have confidence in that is because of Jesus's resurrection, that's deeply comforting to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so th- there's much more we could say, but it's not just, oh, can I have confidence in this event so then I can go convince other people? It actually mm-hmm. affects how I live. And then it also helps me understand just how much Jesus went through on my behalf. Mm-hmm. And so you go back to where you started a minute ago and say, well, often we're, we're hesitant to get into conversations. And l- let me just make that more explicit. We're hesitant to talk about what our Savior went through in suffering grievously on our behalf. I won't endure discomfort to talk about his excruciating agony mm. and murder on strong. my behalf. Yeah. Like, something is just deeply out of whack there, where mm. I, am, I am believing the foolishness of the world instead of the wisdom of God about what's actually important. So our justification, our resurrection, and our certain expectation of the future all hinges on the resurrection. In the past, when we've done student leader trainings, one of the things that I've always found helpful, and I know our student leaders have found helpful is you talk about um, the book tactics and how that can help inform us, and I'll make sure to put that in the notes too, how that can help inform us and how we have conversations around topics like this. And uh, I don't want to use the word debate because it it seems so impersonal, but when we're having these conversations about worldview, could you just give us a couple quick bullet points if you were going to give a one-minute presentation on the main bullet points of tactics? Like how, how can that help us here? Yeah, just simply ask questions. When someone says the resurrection didn't happen, my job is not to just launch into everything I've just explained to you and more. My job mm-hmm. is to say, well, well, why do you say that? Mm-hmm. Like, c- can you explain your reasons for believing the resurrection didn't happen? Uh, because what we're going to find is most people are woefully unfamiliar un, uh, with the details. They haven't even uh, heard much of what I've said today. They might even believe Jesus didn't exist. And they might not realize that many of the things they believe in their opposition to the scriptures are actually out of step with what even secular scholarship would say. So I'm going to ask questions. I want them to explain their beliefs to me. And then that shows me how I can better tailor my answer or future questions to what Mm -hmm. they believe. Like make them prove their case. And then that gives me opportunity to come in where I'm capable and confident and offer uh, different ways of understanding and point them to the truth of what the scriptures say. Mm, That's helpful. Well, thanks so much for giving us time today. That was all very helpful, and uh, we're excited to celebrate as a church Good Friday and Easter this upcoming weekend. Definitely. Thanks, Hunter. Thanks, Brian.